morning, everybody. That's the one that's going to be in the recording, that second one. So that's good. That's a lot better. Hmm. I hope you're all doing well this morning. I, for one, was very blessed this weekend. I got to go to a men's retreat and I got to shoot some guns, and that was fun. Uh, first time I'd ever done that before, so uh, I had a good instructor, so you can, you can feel comfortable. I'm, I'm safe. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was just a blast. Got to go hang out with some, some men from our, our Wesleyan Church District, just uh, the family of churches that we have. Um, a couple states are involved in that, like five states, actually, so... It was, it was just a blast. So uh, kind of coming, coming back from that, and uh, I was just thinking about this morning and about the message that I felt like God had, had led me to for you for today. And I'm just really, I'm really excited because I think it's, it's a fundamental, important idea that we grasp onto. And I think that if we, uh, if we really press into it, God can do some really, really amazing work in us. So I encourage you. This morning to, uh, maybe you're tired like I am, like, you know, if you need to go get more coffee, do that, <laughs> and we'll, we'll do this together. So, um, I wanted to, to kind of talk about babies a little bit this morning. So, uh, I don't know, I, I know a good number of you in here are parents, and so you are familiar with babies, you're familiar with the, uh, the, the joy and the excitement and the innocence and the tenderness of a a little one. We have a four-month-old ourselves. She's almost five months already. Isn't that nuts? On the first. Yeah, I know. It just goes so fast. And uh, Hannah and I, we, we love babies. And, uh, you know, we, we are the kind of parents, we really try to give our, our children as much attention as we can. We want to love on them as much as we can. We want them to know that they grow up in a, parent, in a house where their parents really love them a lot. And Part of that sometimes means doing things that we would not choose to do if it was not for our child asking for it. So, for example, our four-month-old daughter, I love her to death, but she likes to have gas sometimes right at dinner time. And it's this emotional experience, you know, for her. It's, it's a, a very emotional thing. And so... You can't hold her upright. You got to hold her like this, you know, kind of, kind of like football, right? And so it's putting extra pressure on her belly to help her out because apparently it's hard when you are new to pass gas, which I had no idea before I had children. And uh, you got to hold her just right, and you can't sit down, right? You, you know what that's like. If you sit down, no, that like you have to be at this elevation. It's a, it is different. There's my, there's barometric pressure changes or something. That makes them feel like if you're standing, it's better, you know, so you have to stand, but you can't just stand there casually and talk. You have to bounce, right? And you got to, you got to be holding the baby. You got to bounce. And, uh, sometimes at least with my daughter, uh, it's just too quiet or it's too loud or something. So I got to go outside and do it. And so what happens routinely is we'll be, you know, we'll be eating dinner. We'll, uh, the best example I can think of is, uh, at my father-in-law's house, whenever there's like a, a holiday, he likes to do like this crazy full spread of food, like everything, you know, uh, he'll make like this crazy good, like smoked brisket or something, something that like I'm smelling it all morning. I'm excited. And it's lunchtime. I see him slicing it. I'm just like, my mouth is watering. I'm waiting to eat it. And this table's all set out. There's watermelon, you know, I'm just like in heaven. And 
it's time to sit down, but Hadassah really wants to be held because she's got gas, you know? So it's like, okay, <sighs> okay, I'll stand up, okay? I love you so much. Okay, all right, I'll bounce. Okay, okay, let's go outside, you know? And I'm outside, and I'm bouncing her, and I can see through the window them eating lunch, laughing, because they know I'm out there with the baby. Like, <laughs> Tim really wants to join. You know, you know, maybe they were laughing at something else, but that's how I read it. You know, uh, and uh, the, the babies, they have no idea, no sense that that you know, as an adult, that would be extremely self-focused and really uh, not adorable anymore, would it? If someone was like, "Hey, I." Uh, I got, my tummy's got, got the rumbles. Can you go sit with me? You know, can I, can you, you know, it, it can be so difficult. It's just, it's different. When it, you know, that, that beautiful, innocent child that you're like, I'll do anything for you. When that child is like 35 and they're asking for that, like that would not be adorable anymore, would it, right? So babies, I think, are a great example of the innocence of that, but also... You know what? We human beings like to focus on ourselves first a lot, don't we? That's kind of the natural thing that happens when you're born. You don't know to focus on someone else. And sometimes that stays with us a long time. And really, naturally, it kind of does in our sinfulness stay with us. This, this self-focused thing. Okay, We're talking death to self. You guys worship so hard that fell over. Did you know that? By the way, uh, this is our series, Death to Selfie. It's this idea of dying to ourselves. And we're going to go right into the core of that this morning uh, as we talk about that. But even the things, let me, let me just go into this concept a little bit deeper. As, as people that naturally default to being selfish, would you say that you naturally, if you were left to your own devices, that you would naturally default to being selfish and self-focused, right? I know I would. And maybe you all are holier than I am, and I am so grateful that you are, <laughs> you know. But you know what? We can take even the things that seem the most selfless, and we can twist it, and we can distort it, and it's really kind of selfish underneath. And it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's not blatant, it's very hidden, but the type of thing where you'll, you'll, you know, you'll wait last in line for food at something, and you'll let everyone else go first. But really, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I know that when everyone else goes through, they're going to pull out a second round. It's going to be fresh, and I'm going to get the best. You know, and you're kind of thinking, like, uh, how, you know, this is going to benefit me, or people are going to see me, and I'm going to get glory from that. I'm going to be able to, like, oh, man, he is so selfless to wait in line like that. What an awesome guy. You know, that kind of thing. We can twist it, and we, we, we manage to put ourselves on top. And this is the way our culture operates. Everyone around us in, who is not in the kingdom of God, that's just the way things work. And even while many of us would not readily say that we do that, I think somewhere back there, I think we really all kind of do uh, when we're not being intentional. But Christ shows us a more excellent way, uh, a way that requires sacrifice, but which brings freedom beyond what we can imagine. So turn with me to Matthew 16. We're not able to get it on the screen today. Again, I apologize about that, but we will, we will make it work. You know that, did you know that people didn't used to have projectors at church or overheads or anything like that? You know, they had Bibles, <laughs> you know, and they'd, they'd read that. So uh, that we do have some in the back if you don't have one uh, where you can read along with us today. 
So we're reading in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 28. And it says this. This is, this is right before Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration and he sets his eyes and turns himself for the rest of his ministry to his death on the cross. He's headed that direction from that point on after the Transfiguration. Right before that, he says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory and His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. As you can probably see already, this is already very different than the message that we hear from the world, right? If you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ, you will not taste death in the same way that you did before. Jesus is opening our eyes to see something that's really very, very countercultural. He gives us three basic steps, and we'll kind of... Break it down. It's in verse 24. It's really in three segments. And we're going to kind of talk about each segment and kind of the, 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 the progression that is there for us to see. So, verse 24, again, if we jump back to the beginning of what we just read. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Okay, let's pause. They must deny themselves. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be his disciple, he says, the first thing you need to do is deny yourself. And really, I'll admit right off the top here, this is really the crux of the issue. And the majority of what we're going to focus on this morning is that part of it. But the other parts are deeply important. But we're going to spend a moment, we're going to focus on this. He says, deny yourself. This flies in the face of the complete pure hubris that humanity naturally has for itself. Now, I don't know about you, for a long time I had absolutely no idea what hubris meant. Okay, and I only ever heard it in academic settings, and then they didn't explain it and expected you to know what it meant. I'm not going to be that mean. I'm going to tell you what it means so that we have a, 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 uh, an understanding that is equal, that we all are kind of on the same page with it. So I looked it up. Hubris is defined as excessive pride or arrogance. Not just pride or arrogance. Excessive pride or arrogance. Hubris. Hubris is probably the most accurate word that I could possibly think of to define the human race when it's left to its own devices. Absolutely. Hubris. Excessive pride and arrogance. And if you, if you need a couple examples of where that is, how about things like, like really, redefinitions. We like to do that. And, and our culture has been all about redefinitions in, in the recent, uh, you know, even like, like the last 30 to 50 years uh, in, in Western culture especially, we see this redefinition of all of these things that God already defined for us. Things like a redefinition of life. What is life? What is life? It's not, 
you know, it, you, you have to be born to be considered a life, right? It, it's just a lump of cells otherwise. That's not, that's not life. But by the way, if we find that same lump of cells on Mars, we're going to say there's life there, right? There's this re- it's, it's inconsistent, but it's a redefinition that humanity has. How about a redefinition of marriage? You know, God says marriage is between a man and a woman, but no longer. Now marriage can be between a man and a man, a woman and a woman, a man and a dog or a lizard or like animals or cyborgs. You can get married to cartoon characters on the Internet. It has happened. I am not even joking about that one. Redefinition of what marriage means. And I'm only talking at this point surface level of that union, not even what marriage should look like once you're in it. How about redefinition of gender? That's the hot button issue right now, right? This redefinition of gender. There's apparently like, uh, apparently we have been in the dark with our with our uh, binary mode of thinking with that. And there's apparently, I I don't know, there could be an infinite number of genders that I've never heard of before. And we see that happening. How about a redefinition of what it means to even be human in the first place? Things like, you know what? Uh, you know, I heard recently actually at a, at a conference someone talking about this exact issue and about how they believe that in – certain scientists believe that in a couple hundred years we, will, uh, we won't have death anymore. That we'll, we will have figured that out, how to escape that through cybernetics and through implantations and things like that. Uh, and it's this idea that, you know what, uh, to be human doesn't necessarily mean that you have, a, you have a body and a will and emotions and these other parts of you. It's, it's really, you know, uh, being human, it, it, it's, you know, you can be uh, the product of some explosion millions and billions of years ago, but, but you, don't, you don't mean anything. There's nothing beyond who you are as a human being. These redefinitions, each of these is being redefined from the original definition that God already explained to us. If that isn't hubris, I have no idea what is. If we as humanity believe that we have the authority to redefine what the person who created it defined it as, right? If you create something, would you not say that you are the owner of that thing? If you made a model of a race car, would you say that that's your model race car? Well, what if somebody said, or what if the race car actually, to, to say it better, what if the race car said, I'm not a race car, I'm a, I'm a boat? Be like, uh, no, you're, you're definitely a race car. <laughs> I made you, you know. And that's the kind of hubris that humanity has when it's left to its own devices. Do you get the picture? Do you get the picture? Come on, I need to hear it. Like, do you, you understand, right? The self-pride of humanity is prone, uh, sorry, that humanity is prone to, sorry. The self-pride that humanity is prone to having, that hubris, it's really rooted in a lie, an old lie. A lie that was given to us way back in the garden, okay? Look at this. When Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, he succeeded in convincing them that they could not just be like God. That's what he said. He said, you know, you will not surely die. You'll, know, you'll taste of it and you'll know good and evil and you will be like God. He said that, but you know what he really meant underneath all of that? He meant that you will not just be like God. You will become your own kind of God. 
Which is ironically what he himself aspired to. He didn't want to be underneath God. He wanted to be God. And you know what? If he couldn't do that, the next best thing was to take God's prized possession. The most important thing that he ever made. He put his image in us. And if he could convince us to believe that he didn't exist. And that we instead were God. Then he could succeed. He was the one that put that lie there. And in that way, he again was like God, right? Supplanting God's definition with his own. Redefining. And in that way, he was, he was like God. But also, we were like God. But not just like God. We were our own gods, in a sense. Redefining what he had already defined. Saying, your creation's not good enough for me. I'm going to create a new self. Who I want to be. Do you see that? Do you see the hubris there? And if you think that's gone today, let me give you a few examples to show you that it's not. It sounds a little different maybe, but it sounds like you've heard these statements before. I guarantee it. Okay, things like this. You hear it all the time in Disney movies. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. You be you. Somewhere along the line, but more so in our recent era, humanity started teaching itself that individuals could define their own reality. And that their reality is the most important reality. And in doing so, they could become their own God. Do you see that? Do you see the hubris? Can you reflect on yourself of times that you've done that? Maybe without even meaning to. And Jesus confronts, to go back to our scripture, he confronts this idea point blank. He says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Simply put, it's actually not all about you. Right? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. I don't really have to explain what that means, but... If I was going to, it would mean you can't redefine what life means. You can't redefine what marriage means. You can't redefine what gender is. You can't redefine what it even means to be human. You can't just become whoever you want to be. The only person you could ever be or ever hope to be is who God says you are. Because he is the creator and he is the definer of all of these things. Deny yourself. And this brings us to the second step. Also in verse 24, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And then two, take up their cross. Okay, let's pause there again. Deny yourself first. Okay, so we've we've talked about that. Uh, But take up your cross. Notice that he doesn't say take up the cross. He says take up your cross. Your cross, your cross, your cross, your cross, your cross. Not the cross. And I think that's really important. Because, okay, let me be clear. We should take up the cross. Because in that is where life and everything and forgiveness, grace, everything like that proceeds from what Christ did on the cross. And most people don't have a problem taking up the cross. You know, of course, once they get beyond some of the questions that they have, they see the grace that's available to them, the forgiveness that's available to, the, to them. They're very likely to be like, yeah, uh, that 
all I need to do is take up, you know, accept Jesus into my life and accept his, his sacrifice for me? Absolutely. And that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. That is really very, very, very good. We should take up his cross, but we also must take up our cross. By the way, Jesus said that before he went to the cross. And so they, they didn't actually know he was going to die on the cross yet. But they knew what it meant. Take up your cross. Taking up our cross signals a fundamental shift in the thinking that we have. The thinking that's within us. To take up your cross means to recognize your own guilt. Your own sinfulness. Your own unworthiness. And I use that word, unworthiness, very intentionally. Because look at how counterintuitive that is to what we just talked about, the way our culture thinks, okay? The very fabric of the hubris that humanity has is rooted in this idea that we are inherently worthy to be recognized for who we are already. By that I mean, this is who I am. Don't you respect me? Show me some respect. This is who I am. This is who I've decided to be. And I'm going to walk in and I'm going to have all this, this, this confidence in who I am. There's this, this, this idea that you are worthy to be seen that way with, with this, this, this lack of disrespect. To take up your cross is to deny your inherent worthiness. To take up your cross is to deny your inherent worthiness. Because the reality is, you're not. There is a reason the kingdom of God is often called the upside down kingdom, okay? <laughs> it, it, it is completely opposite to what we would naturally want to do. And it's opposite the culture around us. So our worth comes not from our own inherent worthiness, but to a worthiness ascribed to us by Christ himself. The only reason any of us could ever be worthy is because he made us worthy. He made us worthy. This leads to the final step that Christ gives us. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me, he says in verse 24. Follow me. Follow me. I'll, I, sorry, I just had a thought. I'm going to talk about it later, and I'm excited because I think it'll make you laugh. But uh, it's, it's going to be good. Just hang on. <laughs> hang on for a moment. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. At first glance, this is a really simple thing to say after those other two things. The other two require quite a bit of wrestling if you really want to embrace it. This third one, it makes, it's a little bit more clear cut. Just follow me. And it is really pretty simple. Do what Jesus did. Live like he did. Love like he did. Pray for the sick. Give to the poor. Care for the hurt and the broken. Preach the good news always. Be salt and light to the earth. Follow Jesus, right? But make no mistake, Christ is not just calling us to follow his lifestyle. But, his, but also in his death. We're not just supposed to follow the way Jesus lived. And we talk about that a lot, you know. Live the way Jesus lived. I would submit to you that we should also die like Jesus died. That we may live again. 
This progression, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This progression, it's actually pretty natural if you are seeking after the Lord. It's something that you think about it and you're like, okay, if I want to get to where God wants me to be and deny these fundamental thinking things that are going on in my mind that, that, are, that are my default as a sinful human being, like to deny those things, I, I can see that progression. It's actually pretty natural if you think through it. But it's not easy. It's really not easy. It calls us to do something that many of us should heed very carefully. It's serious stuff. It's fundamental to following Jesus and being his disciples. He says, he even says, if you wish to be my disciples, this is what you do. Follow this progression. What would Jesus have us do? If you wish to follow Jesus, you must make that fundamental decision to entirely deny yourself. And I add that word entirely, intentionally. So what happens is that most of us enter salvation in some way that if we were to look back at it, if we were to look back at the the start of our relationship with Christ, we would be able to say, you know what, you know, I really did that for a relatively selfish reason. I'm not saying it's selfish to want freedom and to want life. It's not selfish to want life. At the same time, you're not necessarily wanting to give up absolutely everything if you don't have to either, right? If you don't have to, you wouldn't. But there's, there seems to usually be when you first come to the Lord that some sort of self-fulfilling motive behind it. Something like not wanting to go to hell. I think that's a pretty good reason to come to Christ. But if we were to be honest, it is a, there's a self-fulfilling element to it. Like, I don't want to go to hell, right? You can see that, don't you? And God understands this, and he continually draws humanity to himself through these somewhat self-driven motives. He does that. He he uses that. And there's grace for that, too, by the way, which is, I'm really glad (laughs) there's grace for that. But make no mistake, after we come to Christ, it is God's desire for us to deny ourselves in even the most basic, fundamental ways. That is so deeply important. I can't say it enough. Even things that we may feel inherently entitled to. Perhaps you're thinking, God clearly must not understand how difficult a thing this is that he is asking us to do. Because you're like, you know, it's natural to think that way. He's God, like he can do anything. That's not hard for him to deny those things, right? Like it wouldn't be hard and... Jesus did that. Jesus was God. He was the incarnation. By that, he, the, the, the spirit of the living God, God the Father, sent himself down to earth as a human being. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And that's so important. Because sometimes we discount, like, oh, Jesus was God, so it wasn't hard for him. He was still fully man. He was tempted the same way that we were. There is no difference in that sense. He chose to put aside those godly rights that he had as God in order to experience what we experience. So we can't simply uh, discount that, that part of it. He did precisely this, denying of himself, his entire 
life. He denied himself in every single way you could ever imagine. He did nothing that would benefit himself. He healed others. He fed others. He spoke truth to others. He sweat blood in the garden for others. He was spat on for others. He suffered for others and was ultimately crucified on the cross for others. And by others, I mean us. Like I said before, you're thinking, yes, but he was God. Yes, he was. Therefore, he didn't owe us any of what he gave. He put aside himself, put on human flesh. What more denial of self could there possibly be than to be God of the universe and even though you don't have to, deny yourself and put on human skin and put aside those godly rights. What could be more self-denying than that? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Welcome to the grace of Christ Jesus, the living God. He models for us that if we put off the desires of our flesh and take up the desires of the spirit of the living God, following him into the darkest places that we could, would never go on our own. Choosing to go shed light for his glory as we continually deny ourselves. He's going to tend for our every need if we do that, if we deny ourselves. He will, he'll, he'll tend to all those needs that you're concerned and worried about if you were to actually do this. <laughs> we, will not, we won't even taste death of our spirits. Yes, of our human bodies, but you know what? Like, there's, there's a passage, and I frankly am, the, the, the actual reference is escaping me, but it's in the book of Luke. Jesus says, fear not the one that can harm your earthly body, but fear the one that can send you to hell. Fear the one that can do something about your spirit. Which tells me, you know what? Even though we're all afraid of dying in our human bodies, I am so much more terrified to die in my spirit, aren't you? The thing that goes on afterward? To taste death, and by death I mean going to hell. There couldn't be no other feeling more awful than that. That's worse than death. But Jesus says that we're not going to taste that death in our spirits. If we, and we will live with him forever in eternal glory. All it requires is to die to yourself. So when you die to yourself, it isn't to satisfy the selfish ends of a tyrannical God. Do you see that? Because I think sometimes we, we feel like if we do that, we're, we're, we're only doing it because God asks us to. And, and you know what? I think the problem that people have with, with doing that is that we put him in our, our way of thinking. We try to think about God as if he is another human being like we are. Let me, let me explain this a little bit. We try to contain him in the bounds of our finite human minds and we can't possibly comprehend him. Or the way he does things. If I asked you, what is your name? I don't think I mentioned it. Renee? If I asked Renee, Renee, I need you to deny yourself and follow me. You'd be like, uh. <laughs> right? You'd be like, uh. 
no thank you, you know, <laughs> or uh, maybe something a little bit less, less kind, but you seem very kind. So I'm going to say, you just say, no, thank you. <laughs> um, if, if any of us asked someone else to do that in order to follow us, could we do that? Could I ask that of you and have you not think that I must be asking you to do that for some selfish motive that I have underneath for something that I want? Come help me build my kingdom, Renee. You know, like we can't comprehend how God could possibly ask us that without that selfish motive. But the reality is, is that God doesn't think like we do. He doesn't ask us to die to ourselves to satisfy a selfish desire like we would. And really, I think perhaps the number one reason people wrestle with the idea of dying to themselves is because they question the motive of God in asking them to do so in the first place. You think that's fair to say that? I, I, I've thought about this over and over, and that, that's what I keep coming back to is like, really, I think about someone asking me to die to myself, and the only thing I can think of is what is their motive in asking me to do that? If I was to, to boil it down to a fundamental level. You want to know what God's motive is? He tells us in Romans chapter 6. God's motive. Here it is. Ready? Sorry, I got to turn there. I don't have one of those fancy Bibles with like a thousand tassels on it. Here we go. Romans chapter 6. 6 through 14 says, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a little long, but just listen to these words. God's motive, here it is. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we die with Christ, sorry, if we died with Christ, past tense, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You can't bring yourself from death to life if you don't die first. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin, listen to this, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. God wants you to die to yourself. Here's his motive. He wants you to do that so that you can be truly free. That's it. He wants you to die to yourself so that you can be truly free. And in so doing, he will receive glory that he deserves, by the way. It's not a, a selfish or, or uh, it's not a, a uh, his, him receiving glory from that is not something that he does not deserve. He's entitled to that because, you know what, he's God. He's entitled to that. And 
the most positive sense I can, I can ex- express to you. But he wants you to die to yourself so that you can be truly free. His motive even still is to benefit you and I. He says, are you tired of being enslaved to sin? Then crucify yourself and your sin with it. Crucify that sin. Yeah, you need to crucify with it, but the sin will be taken care of. We just read it, Romans 6, 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Matthew 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 28. Right at the end of the passage we read before. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You will find freedom beyond what you have ever known. But it's not just any freedom. It's freedom from sin and life in Jesus. Freedom from from sin and life in Jesus is what the denial of self results in. It's a denial of personal motives and desires and an embrace of God's motives and desires for your life and for others. He's not just saying deny yourself and then go on your way. He's saying deny yourself and take up my desires for you and for others. That weight you feel from that sin, it comes off when you do this because it dies. It's crucified. It's gone. It's taken care of. But you've got to take up your cross. And then you have to follow Jesus. You can't just deny yourself. If I deny myself all day long, that's all well and good, but it does nothing. If I deny myself, I must also take up my cross. Be crucified on that cross. Not because Jesus didn't pay for it, but because he tells us to live after him and his death as well. And then to follow him. My closing question is this. Is it worth it to you? It's really simple. I don't think I've said anything that escapes what you are are thinking right now. I think you understand what I'm asking. Is it worth it to you? Could you choose to deny yourself? Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. And he does say daily. It really is a daily thing. If you say yes to Jesus and make a decision to follow him today, God will show you new things every day that you need to die to throughout the way. That's part of becoming holy. That's part of his progressive work in us. It's not something that we need to beat ourselves in the head every day like, oh, I messed up. And man, I can't believe I didn't see that. It's like God in his grace is saying, hey, you you might you missed this. I want you to be free from it. So crucify that and let's go on our way and live your day. Live your day for me. This should actually be a very comforting thought that he does that too. Because it means that you don't need to be perfect right away. He does say, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. But that's a goal to strive toward as we seek to follow Jesus And we seek to live the way that he designed us to live in. He'll convict you of things progressively along the way. And all he asks 
is that you choose to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him daily. That's it. That's it. The first step is always the hardest, though. And maybe you've, like I described before, maybe you have chosen to follow Jesus. Maybe you have already said, God, I, I need you in my life. I don't want to go to hell. I want to live. I, I, God, I, I, I see my sin. Maybe you've already made that decision. And if you have, you can still do this. And you should still do this. I still have to do this a lot. (laughs) And if you haven't especially, I encourage you, it is way better than anything you've ever known. That freedom, that weight coming off of you. As we head into a time of communion, I would say uh, that that we we can... Give this to God right now. As we take the body and the blood of Christ in communion, it's an opportunity to remember his crucifixion and to crucify ourselves along with him and our desires. That's what he asks us to do. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. So Rick is going to lead us in communion today.